Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 41. Uh, so, I do, you know, as always, I apologize that it's been such a, a gap between the last one and the other one. I didn't want it to be, uh, but, you know, you just keep pushing things back and other things come up and that sort of thing. But, uh, so I did want to say, first off, thank you to everybody who emailed me regarding the last episode, which was, you know, my testimony. Uh, I was very reluctant to post it because I don't know why. I thought it would make me sound bad. I, th- I don't know why in retrospect, but at the time I, I recorded it several days before I posted it and I was just agonizing over it. And then finally I just went ahead and did it. And, uh, by and large, not a by and large, I'd say unanimously people have been very nice about it and they have been very, um, appreciative that I was willing to be vulnerable. And so I do appreciate everybody who emailed me. Uh, that was uh, really great. So uh, since then, there have been uh, a couple of developments that I wanted to tell you about. First off, uh, I was on a podcast hosted by Paul Gilmartin of TBS's Dinner and a Movie. It is called The Mental Illness Happy Hour. You can find it in iTunes or you can find it at mentalpod.com. Uh, and on that, I went on to talk about uh, some of the stuff that I'm going through emotionally right now, uh, depression and kind of the self-hatred thing, and uh, I go into a fair amount of detail, probably more than I did uh, during my uh, testimony. But uh, So if you want to go over and listen to that, I know Paul would certainly appreciate it, though uh, I should mention that there is... As you know, like with this with this podcast, more than one lesson, uh, there is no swearing, um, but there there is on his show, and yes, some of it is from me. So head on over and listen to that. Uh, and if if anybody is listening to this because you heard me on that, uh, welcome. It's good to have you. Uh, that episode was just featured on the Onion AV Club's Podmass uh, feature. And so if you found about found out about me and this show from that, uh, welcome to you as well. I do want to specify, I, I do this from, from time to time to the point where some people have said I don't need to do it, uh, so I'm going to try to adopt a slightly different tone than I have in the past. Uh, this is a Christian show. Anybody is willing to listen, is uh, more than welcome to listen, of course. But it is a Christian show. I am a Christian, and I'm going to be saying Christian things. I'm going to be quoting the Bible. And so if you came to the show somehow, for one reason or another, expecting me not to do that, and to hear quotes from the Bible and, you know, very and Christian speak, uh, if, to, if to hear that would anger you, I'd say uh, move on. Uh, that sounded almost it just it sounded like an old Irish cop in a 1930s movie. It's like, all right, move it along, move it along. But yeah, it's just I don't know. I I I myself am somebody who I frequently I used to do it more than I do, but I still do it a little bit now. Is I will seek out things online expressly to make me angry. I guess just so I could feel like righteous indignance or something like that. Um, but 
it only ever all it ever did was make me angry and frustrate me and that sort of thing and my guess is that for me it's pro- that sort of thinking and that sort of instinct is what contributed to my current emotional state which is depression um and a general irritability so if you if you are you know sensitive to christian stuff there's no rule that says you have to listen to this i'm not going to be offended um, now, of course, some of the reason that I'm saying this is because I really don't feel like, uh, getting hostile emails from somebody who is, uh, shocked and appalled at the idea that a Christian would do a Christian show. Um, so there is a certain degree of self-preservation in what I'm saying right now, but I'm not saying that to scare you off. Again, I, th- I, I feel like half of my listeners are not Christian and I'm happy to have them. I'm happy to have anybody listen to the show, but, you know, just be ready for what the show actually is. Uh, And in the spirit of that, let's move on. So I want to try and kick off a series. Now, of course, I do an episode per month, so this series could last, you know, four or five months. But I do want to try and maybe record things more frequently. So we'll see if that actually happens. I've been saying that for, uh, I'm going to say, a year. But... uh, so I want to start this series. It'll, I think, be a four-part series. And the idea is I want to discuss movies about art. Uh, not necessarily about filmmaking, but just about art in general. And each topic, uh, each, each film that we talk about will tackle a different aspect of that. Um, because as I've... I don't know, as I've, as the show has continued and I've thought more and more about what I want the show to be and who I want to speak to with the show, uh, I realize I, I get excited when Christians embrace art, whether it be just as a hobby, whether it be as a ministry tool, whether it be as, you know, a possible profession. I get excited about that because I've known plenty of Christians that are just suspicious of art. For one reason or another, they just narrow their eyes at it and they just don't trust it. And so one thing that I try to do with this show is to get people to understand that um, God can speak through anything. It doesn't. It, not everything has to be fireproof or left behind. Not everything has to be overt. Uh, God's truth can come through even if the person making the film or, or the people acting in the film or the person editing the film, whatever the case may be, even if they are not Christian, even if they don't believe in God, God can still use them to illustrate a deeper truth. And I don't know, I find that invigorating and I like the idea of Christians talking deeply about art because... Well, I'll get more into that as we uh, as we talk about today's uh, episode um, or uh, movie. So, so yeah, the idea is for the next however many months, uh, every episode uh, is going to be devoted to a movie that deals with art in some way or artists. So the first one is going to be all right. <laughs> I recognize that I I guess I'm just some sort of 
Pixar groupie. Uh, I talk about Pixar on this show all the time. Um, this is only our our 41st episode, and I think I've talked about probably, I think, four or five Pixar films. And so, you know, I recognize that you guys might be tired of hearing about it, except that I, I love the work they do. A possible exception is going to be Cars 2, which looks, uh, I'm going to say, insipid. So... You know, maybe, they, maybe they'll break their streak with that. Not that I'm a huge fan of the first cars. But by and large, the things that they explore are very... I won't even say adult. They're universal. Because children obviously enjoy these films, but adults do as well. And I never feel pandered to as I do when I watch the Shrek films or something like that, where uh, the attitude is, hey, let's throw in a... Uh, you know, double entendre. Um, let's throw that in for the adults and still have this little kid-like story. Let's throw in a, po- a pop culture reference so that the adult has something. Uh, if you te- if you have a good story, well told with great characters that we care about or at the very least are invested in, if you have that, then everybody can watch it. I mean. Great storytelling can appeal to people ages three to, you know, a hundred. It's a good story is a good story. And I also want to speak to uh, some people's objection that why am I devoting so much time to cartoons? And I don't know, the idea that that animated films are for kids. I've run across that attitude from time to time. I know that uh, uh, a guy who worked at my old workplace... Uh, had that opinion. He just said, yeah, these movies are for children, which seemed, it seemed so reductive to me. Because, but but not merely because I want a reason to like them, but for the same reason that somebody could point to, I, I don't know, the films of Spike Lee and say, those are films for black people. Or they point to, I don't know, The Notebook or some of the better romantic comedies and say, those are films for women. Or they point to The Fugitive and Inglorious Bastards and say, those are films for men. Uh, a good movie is for everybody. Everybody can enjoy it because there's something that everyone can, can latch on to. And I'm not talking about uh, making the film broader and broader so that it can reach every demographic. I mean, just tell a story with someone that we care about and it does not matter what the genre is. It doesn't matter if it's an, an a, you know a, a cartoon animal running around. If it's well told, I'm invested. And the film has merit it because it touches me emotionally, and it's a whole other genre. So to dismiss an entire genre of film, I think is uh, I'd I'd venture to say short-sighted. Um, but because I don't think anybody would ever dismiss. Uh, certain children's stories I don't mean like you know little short picture books I mean like Alice in Wonderland which is ostensibly a children's story but of course there's a lot of layers to it Uh, but people who love uh, literature probably would not do that and so I want to try and uh, get people who like film to take certain certain types of film seriously I would say the two big ones for me are um animated films and horror films I myself have been somebody who has looked at horror films and said Bugh, 
there's no, there's nothing redeeming in there. Only to find out that I just was watching the wrong ones. It's rather appropriate that I'm recording this on Friday the 13th because all of those are the wrong ones. I'm sorry. I know that some people are horror buffs and they just love all kinds of gruesome special effects. I can appreciate I can appreciate that, but I'd appreciate it a lot more if it was in favor of something that I cared about at all. So, okay. In the spirit of that, we're going to be talking about Ratatouille, uh, directed by Brad Bird. It came out in 2007, and it won. It was nominated for several Oscars, including original screenplay, sound editing, sound, and music. But it won for Best Animated Feature, as Pixar movies almost always do. Uh, and that's, that's okay, because I do often think that they are the best animated films. But uh, Ratatouille, for those that listen to Battleship Pretension, was my favorite movie of 2007 precisely because it, the way that it, it first off, it's, its insistence on uncompromisingly dealing with art and artists and the struggles of what it is to want to be an artist, both uh, from people that aren't artists and from the art community itself. Uh, it is a very difficult thing to break into because you are constantly told by everybody, you can't do it, it's impractical, and I don't see the point. Uh, and Ratatouille's willingness to deal with that while still being, I would say, something of a visual marvel because the main story is a rat named Remy, and he's running through uh, the city of Paris in various kitchens and in the sewers and that sort of thing. And so to see things from his point of view... Because he is often he is often running and ducking underneath things, and uh, and the film that is one of the great things about animation is that it can allow us to go places we normally couldn't go, and and Ratatouille and Brad Bird in general as a filmmaker I think really takes advantage of that. Uh, of course, The Incredibles I think along with being a great family film is one of the better action movies of the last few years because Brad Bird has such a solid. Uh, understanding of what of camera and editing and and uh, and just choreography, even though it is an animated film, there's still choreography, there's still camera movement, it's all there, and the same goes with Ratatouille. Uh, but what I remember, you know, it's I'm sure I said this with uh, in the Wally episode when I when I first saw a trailer for Ratatouille, in spite of the fact that I had seen. Uh, Finding Nemo and The Incredibles, uh, and to a lesser extent, Cars. But the fact that I I really liked Pixar, I saw the trailer for Ratatouille and I thought, really? A rat that cooks? That's what you've got for me? Seriously? Much in the same way that I saw Wally and I was like, oh, an adorable robot. Yeah, I've I've seen Short Circuit. Uh, For some reason, whatever that is, uh, I just don't seem to trust Pixar. it's almost like a, it's like a it's like Bob Ross for anybody who remembers Bob Ross. He was a painter on like PBS. He has since passed away, unfortunately. But uh, he was a painter on PBS, and he would always just paint these you know landscapes, and they always looked really good. But then he always did one thing about halfway through, and you thought, and it just was like a blight on this landscape. And you'd think like Bob Ross, what are you doing? And then he would always turn it into something amazing. He would turn it into like a really rustic looking cabin or something. Uh, And so you're like, ah, he brought it around. But 
inevitably you'd watch the next episode and he would do the same thing. He would add something and you're thinking, oh my gosh, what is he doing? Because you've completely forgotten that he totally, uh, he totally redeemed himself in the last painting. You completely forget about that. And I feel much the same way about the Pixar films. I certainly felt that way about Ratatouille. Uh, and then when I saw it, of course, it blew me away. 2007 was a great movie year. And I'm not saying that I think Ratatouille is better than No Country for Old Men or There Will Be Blood or, uh, you know, Michael Clayton or Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. There was a lot there was a lot of great film that year, but I liked Ratatouille the most because of its themes and the way that it explored them. And the, the basic story is Remy the Rat lives in a, uh, I guess, colony of rats there's there's probably a different name for that hive that doesn't sound right whatever anyway a big a big family of rats uh and his father is kind of the the head of of this uh, group of rats his name is Django he is voiced by Brian Dennehy Remy is voiced by uh comedian Patton Oswalt and uh Django discovers that Remy uh has a certain talent, which is he can sniff out poison. So he can sniff out rat poison. So sometimes people will, you know, disguise rat poison as food. And then it is up to Remy to smell it and say whether or not it's poison or if it's perfectly fine to eat. Now, the reason that Remy has this talent is because he has a more uh, refined palate than any of the other rats. He, unlike the others, who are willing to just eat anything that is even mildly edible. Remy actually yearns for good food. And, and what's more is he wants to be able to cook good food. There is a, uh, a chef named Gusteau that he sort of uh, idolizes. And, he, and Gusteau's attitude is anyone can cook. And he's almost viewed as sort of a chef, chef Boyardee type, a guy that is... Uh, whose attitudes many in the in the world of um, fine dining and cooking, uh, many people see Gusto as something of a sellout because of his attitude that, hey, anybody can cook. It's you know, it's not a not a huge deal. But uh, and so Remy idolizes this guy, he he loves food and he wants to be a cook, and he is often mocked by his father, by other people, but his father especially, who calls him a snob and who just doesn't under... He doesn't see the point in in f- the idea of food being good and well-prepared. Food is just something that keeps you going. That's all. And so Remy just kind of has to fight against his father, and when the when all the rats are suddenly scattered, Remy finds, uh, you know, finds himself trekking through the sewer and he lands in Gusteau's restaurant in Paris. And of course he's thrilled and he strikes up a, he strikes up a a friendship with Gusteau's, uh, son. I, I guess it's not revealed until later that, that this kid, uh, Linguini is, Gusto's long lost son, but he's just this guy who uh, shows up and needs a job, and so they just let him, you know, be essentially the janitor. But Remy works with this young kid Linguini, and between the two of them, they can't actually talk, but 
they discover through uh, a delightful little sequence that when Remy stands on top of Linguini's head and pulls his hair at a certain time, you know, a certain way, it will move his arm, you know, his right arm or his left arm, and it, he can make him walk. And the idea is Remy can sort of use Linguini as a puppet and cook food. And so I realize that all of that sounds silly, and admittedly it is. But it's also, that is the other neat thing about uh, animated films, is that they can also create whatever reality uh, we, ne- we want them to. And in a world where rats uh, talk, or at least to each other, in English, in spite of the fact that they're in France, uh, in this world, yeah, okay, this rat can control this, uh, this human like a puppet. And so Gusteau's restaurant becomes uh, very uh, popular again because, hey, who is this new who is this new cook with all these new ideas? And they all point to Linguini, but in fact, it is Remy the Rat. Nobody knows about it. So uh, throughout it all, uh, there is, you know, Remy's father, Django, who we don't see for a while, but then they run across each other again, and... And Remy is so excited because he's found his purpose. He's finally found, you know, the thing that he's always wanted to do, he's able to do now. And it's very exciting. And, of course, Django uh, just kind of starts crapping on him again and saying that his dream is stupid and it's impractical and what's the point? And so that is that is kind of what I wanted to talk about thematically and how it relates to art. Uh, you will find... Uh, now, of course, you're listening to this, so my guess is you're probably into film. But you could be into painting, you could be into literature, you could be into television, you could be into music, or you could be into, you know, the culinary arts. And there's always going to be somebody there who will doubt you. It might be a family member, it might be a friend, or a coworker or a boss, uh, it could be a teacher. It could be, you know, a Christian show. I'll mention this. It could be a pastor or a church community. There's always going to be somebody that not merely doubts you and your ability to do it. Because as I mentioned, in the art world, it's always difficult to break in. And so some might, some might say, well, it's impractical. And actually, that'll probably be one of the kinder things that you hear. It's still discouraging, but at the very least, people understand the value of what it is you're trying to do. Probably the more crueler um, criticism comes when people devalue the very thing that you love. And that will happen quite a bit, much in the same way that Django says to Remy, not only like not only are you my son and you'll do what I say, but also what you want to do is stupid who cares about food being uh, well-prepared? It's just supposed to keep us going. And now, of course, I'm a, I'm a film fan, so that hit close to home for me because there's a lot of people, maybe you've run across it too, who say that films are only supposed to be entertaining, ever. And that any film that is trying to do something, uh, trying to challenge you, that film, what's the point? I just want to be entertained. I don't want. I don't go to see movies to think. These are uh, these are all things that I've heard in my capacity of mo- you know movie podcaster, somebody who's worked in the mo- in in a movie theater and a couple of video stores. I have run across people who say I don't watch movies to think. 
I just want to be entertained. And they don't stop there. They say that movies are only entertainment. You know, it's one thing for them to speak only for themselves, and I'm kind of okay with that, actually. I feel like they might be missing out, but whatever. Everybody's got a different thing. But they will often go further and say that movies are only entertainment, and often they'll say movies are just made to make money, and that they're just like anything else. And you'll run across that a lot with uh, with music and, and arts that are generally accepted by wide uh, wider culture, you know, I, I hate to say it, but not a lot of people seek out, you know, uh, visual art like painting. They won't necessarily seek that out. I, I'm not a huge, it's not that I'm not a fan of it, but I don't seek it out myself. I focus mostly on uh, film and television and to a lesser extent, uh, music. But uh, art forms like TV, like film, like music, things that pretty much everybody, whether they even are huge fans of it or not, everybody partakes in in some capacity. Uh, and invariably, you will run across people who say that there's really nothing to them, and it's fine, and it's not a big deal. And even when you, and then when you show them a film that does challenge them and does require something of them, uh, often rather than meet the film where it is, they get mad that the film has not met them where they are, as film so often uh, does. So that is the attitude that you find in Remy's father. And that is what is so frustrating because Remy, he's not, he's just trying to get people to, he's just trying to get, not people, he's trying to get the other rats to understand what they could possibly be missing. And he is, his hopes and his dreams are constantly dashed. And that's on one side of it. The other side of it is, of course, uh, the very competitive uh, restaurant. But then, of course, uh, in what I think is a really interesting uh, twist, there is a character in the film named Anton Ego. He's voiced by Peter O'Toole, and he is a food critic. And he's a very well-respected food critic, but he is very—he's very old, very set in his ways, and one could say a little evil. And of course, his last name is Ego, so there is that. And. Uh, Critics, art critics of all kinds, are have been portrayed this way in the past uh, as people that are arrogant and they, you know, they know better than everybody else and, and that sort of thing. And admittedly, there are critics that act like that. And hey, I I titled my show more than one lesson, and so it sounds, you know, people have criticized that and say that it's like I'm teaching you something because I'm in a position of authority. So, you know, even I uh, fall into it now. Of course. For those that don't know, the title is a reference to a line from Citizen Kane, and the idea is that uh, I approach films as if they are modern-day parables who often have more than one lesson uh, to teach. So, so I do understand that critics are often viewed a certain way. If you watch the terrible film Lady in the Water, you will see that there is a critic there that is kind of a know-it-all and he's kind of annoying and when he eventually gets his comeuppance, which is literally to be killed by a dog or a dog type creature, um, we are supposed to cheer. And all I saw was sour grapes because uh, critics did not care for the village. And I think M. Night Shyamalan got angry with them. And so by all means, let's kill the people that are demanding that you do a better job and not be so lazy about things. Uh, as you can tell, I myself am a little bitter as well. And I thought 
that that's the direction they were going to go with the character of Ego in Ratatouille because his whole his whole attitude is defiance and that he gave Gusto's restaurant a bad review years before but now it's popular again and he and he can't imagine that but wait I'm I gave it a bad review I sort of set the standard here and yet people are defying me and so he goes back to Gusto's and he talks to Linguini because of course he doesn't know that Remy is the one uh, making all the food so he talks to Linguini, and he, he has such an interesting uh, f- uh, f- bit of dialogue in which he says, you have, you know, you've been playing without an opponent. And it was such a weird thing that he, that he as a critic, is tre- you know, treats this as a game and that he is the opponent of art and not the champion of art. And I feel like that is something that critics often run across. Uh, you know, a temptation for critics is that they are defying movies uh, to please them. And they actually don't go in with the attitude of, I love movies and I just want to help people love movies. So, so he says, you've been playing without an opponent. And that is the, that's the other thing for people who want to pursue art and especially Christians who want to pursue art. You will sometimes run across people whose attitude is, oh, you're a Christian. You can't possibly create good art. Um, you know, you're from out here, you run across it a fair amount. Like if you are a Christian, that means that you're probably from the Midwest and, and really that means you're, you know, pretty low brow. Uh, you, you can only do so much good stuff if you're from the Midwest and you still ascribe to these old fashioned Christian ideas. And so, you know, it's sort of a, sort of an elitist view, uh, and it flies in the face of a phrase that is frequently used in Ratatouille, which is anyone can cook. And, of course, you can, sub- you can substitute the word cook uh, with anything else. Anyone can act. Anyone can compose. Anyone can paint. That sort of thing. And so, eventually, Ego goes in and just tells Linguini, surprise me. And he's and he's got his pen ready. He's going to write his review. And so Remy decides he's going to make ratatouille, uh, ratatouille the uh, the the dish. I wish I knew more about food. Otherwise, I'd I'd have a better way to describe that. And so he serves it to Ego. Ego takes a bite. And what's fascinating is we see, we cut to, we have this quick flashback to Ego as a young boy crying in like this little cottage because he's like scraped his knee and then his mother like scoops him up and holds him and then cooks him ratatouille and it makes him feel better and then we and then we cut back to the present and we see ego drop his pen and he's just amazed and he just want he just starts eating more because it is so good and i find that interesting in a lot of ways because often as much as we critics like to imagine that we are objective and that we appreciate everything on an intellectual level when it comes right down to it some of the best movies are ones that are deeply resonant for a reason that has nothing to do with our training or anything like that it has everything to do with what we've been through in this life something that cannot necessarily uh be i don't know be explained and so and in that way really anybody can appreciate art because everybody has had experiences in this life 
the difference is that maybe not everybody taps into that so quickly the way ego did. And that's where I think critics can play a role is helping you to understand what the film might be trying to do and what you as a viewer can bring to it. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, Ego asks to meet the chef. And so they actually trot out Remy. Ego is suspicious, as one would assume. But they go back to the kitchen and he watches Remy make ratatouille and he's amazed. And he writes this wonderful review in which he talks about what it is to be a critic and that it and and he remembers what it was like to be a critic, which is to champion the new, to help usher in something that the larger audience might be a little suspicious of. And he also goes on to say that he understands now why Gusto says anyone can cook. And he says, of course, it's not that Literally anyone can cook. Some people have a talent, some people don't. But that a cook can come from anywhere. An artist can come from anywhere. It could come from the Midwest, it could come from any walk of life. Anybody can, a great artist can come from anywhere. And so if you keep that in mind, it it helps you to realize that... It helps you to open. I don't know. It helps, helps you to open your mind a little bit, and maybe not be so judgmental when somebody says, "Hey, I'm a Christian. And I want to make art," or "Hey, I'm you know an atheist and I want to I want to be an artist" or anything like that. It helps you to accept that art is a larger thing that appeals to everybody, regardless of what they believe and where they're from. And and then, of course, as the as the film goes on, where it's near the end now. Uh, Django sort of sees the light and he doesn't, he doesn't flip over. It's not like he decides he wants to be a great cook, but he understands what Remy can do and he under and he starts to finally have an appreciation for it. Um, and that is something that, that I think everybody has an appreciation for art, but there, as I said, there are some arts that people just don't think they don't even maybe they don't even think of it as art and they view it as disposable but uh you know if you if you as an artist if you take the right attitude because at, there are times where Remy is is a little snobbish to his dad as just like hey he just doesn't get it you know he's not as he's not as uh refined as I am and that sort of thing. And that's never the good attitude to have because if you follow that path, you wind up uh, as Anton Ego, a guy who is flabbergasted that people would go back to a restaurant after he has said that it is bad. And so, you know, you, you want to try and have a conciliatory attitude about it. And in that spirit, I will bring up the companion film very quick, which is Billy Elliot, which was directed by Stephen Daldry. And it starred, it kind of kicked off the career of uh, actor Jamie Bell. It was nominated, nominated for Best Director, Best Supporting Actress for Julie Walters, and Best Original Screenplay. And uh, I love Billy Elliot. I, uh, it's just a film that, you know, it's about a kid in this uh, tough Irish mining town who happens to, for one reason or another, love ballet. And his father and older brother are these tough miners in the midst of like a coal uh, a coal strike, and so they're trying to you know hold fast to that, but they also don't have a great deal of money. And then in the midst of this, they find that uh, you know his father finds that his youngest son wants to be a ballet dancer, and 
I realize that to some that might almost sound like this cutesy sort of thing, but the way that, that the film treats it is very real. It is emotionally, sometimes very emotionally difficult. There's all kinds of language in there. It is not a film that is necessarily easy to watch. It's inspirational to be sure, but it's not necessarily easy. And so much in the same way uh, as Django uh, tries to discourage Remy from pursuing his dream, uh, Billy's father, uh, Jackie, very much tries to discourage him from doing uh, this thing that you know, is viewed as effeminate. I mean, people question Billy's sexuality and, and he just doesn't want any part of it. But then there's one scene where, uh, Billy defiantly dances in front of his father and his father and and he finishes. It's, it's, it's a really wonderful sequence. It's probably over in, you know, a, two or three minutes, and then we see his father with what looks to be a look of horror on his face. And he doesn't say anything, and he just walks out. And we think, man, oh man, this is the end of it. Like, Billy's father is not going to want to have anything to do with him now that he's actually seen him dance ballet. Uh, and, and Billy uh, has a, a teacher named Mrs. William, uh, uh, named Mrs. Wilkinson, played by Julie Walters, who was nominated for Supporting Actress, and she has been you know, teaching him how to hone his, uh, his skills, his natural skills that he loves to do and is naturally good at. Uh, and so when Billy's father leaves without a word, he actually goes to see the teacher and says, I will do anything that I can to get my son this education. It's it's amazing. I see what he's good at. And I was stupid for ever wanting to limit that. And so the rest of the film is uh, these characters all trying to get Billy into this very prestigious ballet school. And, you know, and in both in in both of these films. And so I realize I have not talked much about Billy Elliot, except that just really wonderful just really wonderful performances by and large. Uh, Stephen Daldry is a very good director. Uh, he's been nominated several times. And so it's, it's very well directed. It's use of music and the way that it uh, choreographs and shoots the ballet sequences uh, really makes you feel like you're there. And it's very exciting, but I'd say first and foremost, this is a film of performances and, uh, Gary Lewis, who plays Billy's father, and Julie Walters is amazing. They're both really great. And, of course, Jamie Bell is wonderful because he is somebody who quickly realizes in the film that the only thing he wants to do is this. It is Nothing has been more clear to him in his life. The only thing he wants to do is dance ballet to the point where in, in scenes of extreme frustration, the only way he can get out his anger is to dance and there's a sequence that is uh maybe the most uh seen sequence and the most uh, appreciated sequence of the film and rightfully so is when billy uh is running down these alleys dancing and running and he's furious and he's crying like there's a lot of stuff going on and you would never think that 
dancing and extreme anger and desperation would ever go well together, but it does, and that is a that is a function I'd say first uh, primarily uh, of Jamie Bell and his ability to convey all of this all while dancing, and he dances very well, and so it's just a really great performance and a really good film, and both of these films are about people who they have such a clear I would say calling. It is as though there is nothing else. And that calling sort of flies in the face of what is recognized as acceptable. Uh, and of course, in the case of Remy, he, he wants to be a, a chef in a world where food is only something to keep you going. In the world of Billy Elliot, Billy wants to do this very culturally girlish thing in maybe like the most masculine city uh, in that country. And so, so it's very, uh, I don't know, there, there is that kind of, it's kind of invigorating to see that these characters are sort of misfits uh, on the outside and that people finally come around and say, you know what, I was wrong. Uh, this is clearly what you're supposed to do. And I do want to keep, I do want to, you know, bring this into Christianity because uh, I was so I have something called a Roku box, and on it you can I bought it so that I could watch Netflix wa- Netflix watch instantly on my television. But there's also these other channels that you can download for free, and there's one in which you can watch various college lectures. And so I started watching uh, lectures from Dallas Theological Seminary, and. There was one lecture that was really fascinating to me, and and the instructor had said, he, he gave this illustration, he said, you know, he's like, I have a dream that someday uh, there will be a young guy at the back of a church uh, during, a, during a, a church service, and it's getting near the end, uh, it's during the prayer time, and this guy, this young guy feels the call to be a lawyer. And he says, there's no question that God is is calling me to study law and be a lawyer. And that this guy would walk down to the front, tell the pastor, I just felt God's call to be a lawyer. And that the pastor would tell everybody, my friends, brothers, sisters, whatever you'd want it to be. um, God has just called our friend so-and-so to study law and be a lawyer. And everybody cheers, and they're so happy. And that's that's my dream. And so when I heard that, I, when I heard the instructor uh, say that, it was really interesting to me because I've said it before here that there are some. Of course, the reason that that's a dream is because that would never happen. However, if somebody came up and said, "God has called me to be a pastor," or "God has called me to be a missionary," or really only a handful of overtly church-related professions. Um, only if you were, if you felt called to that, would the church celebrate it? Everything else is viewed as, well, you know, Hey God, uh, I guess, I guess you're supposed to be a plumber, but whatever, I guess you can honor God another way. I bring up plumber because my uh, grandfather was a plumber and he was a very devout Christian and a very strong uh, man of God. And he liked what he did. You know, but the the general attitude of the church is not that there's anything wrong with being a plumber, just that there's only so much God can do with it. And, of course, if you want to be an artist, 
Well, I mean, that's a whole other thing because, as I said, the church is often very suspicious of art and artists because that's, that's the realm of the, uh, the seculars. No thank you. Not for me. Unless, of course, you want to make crap like fireproof. Uh, I'm sorry. You're out. Um, but, you know, it's something to, something to strive for that, hey, God called you to a specific thing. You're really good at it. You love doing it. If it happens to be art of some kind, so be it. You know, uh, and I will bring up, I will bring up these verses while I turn off my air conditioning. Uh, so the first verse, uh, the, both of these verses are Second uh, Corinthians twelve. I just uh, cut some stuff out of the middle there. First Corinthians twelve verses four through six. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. Spirit capitalized. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. And then uh, skipping down in 1 Corinthians a little bit. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 21 through 27. So this is going to be a little lengthy. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the, par- and the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body, but that, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are, uh, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part in it. And so I'm talking specifically about art, but this really can go to anything. In the Christian community, people act as though some, there are some professions, there are some passions, there are some hobbies that are just better than others because they, they deal directly with the church and preaching the gospel. And everything else, whatever. Hey, good for you. I guess you found something to do. Make some money, provide for your family, be a good husband. Maybe you can serve the church by, uh, maybe you can uh, teach Sunday school or something. Um, and that attitude is terrible, and I would venture to say unbiblical. We all have a part to play. Uh, there are supposed to be Christians in every profession, because God needs somebody in every profession. He wants somebody in every profession. You know, and, and if you are called to be a filmmaker, or a painter, or a cook, or a ballet dancer, and and you are faced, and you as a Christian are faced with other Christians who act as though there's no use in that, it's a stupid dream, and God can't possibly use it. Point them to these verses. Point them to these movies and say, look at these people. Like, there's no question that that is the thing they are supposed to do, and this is the thing that I'm supposed to do. You know, it's it's interesting. Um, when I lived in Missouri, and I went and I was going to be going to Chicago to uh, pursue film, and I was going to go to uh, film school, uh, there were people in my church who said, "said Wow, Tyler, that's really brave. You know, you're following this thing." And I'm not saying that to toot my own my own horn. That's what they said. But my response was like, "It's there's no there's no bravery involved. This is the this is the only thing I can do." 
and there's nothing else I want to do. You know, it's to me, it's as practical a decision as there, as there can be. And so that may be the same for you. And specifically in the art world that is so often in the Christian community, treat as if it's like, you know, redheaded stepchild, whatever you want, whatever metaphor you want to make. Um, I guess that's a simile. Oh, well, uh, whatever the case may be, like, if it's what God called you to do, it's what God called you to do. And we need everybody. No, but no calling is better than another. We're all part of it. And so hopefully this is an encouragement to you because, and I feel like this is, this was the way to kind of kick off my, uh, my series on movies about art because step one, if you are, if you feel like you're supposed to be an artist, step one is acknowledging that there's absolutely nothing wrong with that and that God can and will use that. And he's probably the one calling you to it. So there we go. That's our discussion about Ratatouille and Billy Elliot. Uh, thank you everybody for listening. Uh, you can go to more than one lesson.com to find various things. Uh, as you might've noticed, uh, the website is new and improved and I'd say easier to more organized. Uh, you may also notice that it looks exactly like the Battleship Pretension website. That's because I paid the same guy to update my site. So I apologize. I know it's a ripoff, but whatever. Uh, there are a few blogs on there. Uh, we did just get a new blogger named Jim uh, Rohner. I think that's how you say the last name. I don't know. I haven't actually spoken to him. It's just through email. And uh, he's got a blog up there. Uh, if you want to write me, you can email me, Tyler, at morethanonelesson.com. You can follow me on Twitter. Uh, that's twitter.com slash morelessons. And, yeah, so there we go. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and I'll get you next time. <laughs>